0: We're just gonna maximize you, Andy. Consider yourself oh, okay. ma- Consider yourself maximized.
1: Am I being promoted? Just ma-
0: <laughs> just maximized.
1: Okay. Yeah. Now, where are you guys best? Leeds. Leeds? Have you ever been to Leeds? I've not been to Leeds, but yeah, I hear they're doing better this year in football. <laughs> Soccer, as you would call it. Well, yeah, I'm a big fan, I call it
2: football. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to Book Club.
1: First rule of Book Club is, you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is, tell everyone about Book Club.
0: So when did you write your Sales?
1: Oh, gosh. 2014, 2015, something like that. And what made you write it? Where did it come from? <laughs> what made me write it? Other
0: than um, the need to sell some training and...
1: Actually, yeah, it's just... I don't know. I, I think somebody asked me a question. Actually, I was on a, a podcast earlier this morning. And so uh, sort of the same question. It's just... I just felt the need to share, I guess. It's, you know, there's, there's so much written about sales from my perspective that is is uh, just sort of wrote training, do this, do this, do this. Uh, that doesn't really challenge people to think about what they're actually doing. And I guess that's, that's probably the motivation more than anything else. Just saying is, how do I reach people who actually think and are very deliberate about what they do in selling instead of just sort of robotically following a sales process. So um, that's sort of the perspective of a lot of things I write. And this was actually sort of culmination of sort of a plan. I'd written a lot of uh, blog posts sort of leading up to it and putting together in book form.
0: Do you know, I said to Mike, when we were recording book club last week, I said, it feels like an amalgamation of a year's worth of blogging (laughs)
1: <laughs> well it was, it was a little more deliberate than that it was the idea was to come up with the book so yeah, you know, some people are very deliberate when they blog about yeah you know, i'm gonna do keyword research and we're gonna write about the topics that people want to and i was sort of doing it the other way as i had a plan to write the book and thought what better way to write it than actually write it and then share it with people in process and see what people thought so um it's sort of like harkening back to the old days like you know Dickens, you know, all of his novels are serialized, right? And he was doing that and he would modify what he was going based on what he heard. And I was sort of trying to take the same approach. Andy, are you,
0: are you comparing yourself to Charles Dickens, Andy? <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> are we really going there? Just, just from, just from a, a creative process standpoint.
0: So Andy, this is Mike. I'm Jonathan. I take it we're already rolling and recording here, Lily. Fantastic. So we have been reading amp up your sales we've read all of it we've done the show we recorded all four episodes of it last week it'll go out mm. in the next four weeks and today we're going to talk to you about it michael and i find the same thing with every author we interview
2: what's that mike you know, the book always provide the author always provides a lot more context about the book yes it does i think yes. Always. i had a look at your background on linkedin before i read the book right okay so uh it said you left university then did yes. absolutely nothing at all and then became a sales trainer he's from california oh. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to be a little bit you know but i wondered before becoming a sales trainer where, where did you learn to sell where did you grow up as a salesperson well i grew up
1: in the tech business primarily yeah so for, for big companies or little companies well, I started with a big company, a company called Burroughs that is now Unisys. Right. Um, it was selling- Sperry, wasn't it? And Well, so it was a combination of Sperry, Univac and Burroughs became That's Unisys, right. yeah. yeah. And so I was working for Burroughs, which is a fabulous place to learn how to sell like IBM and Xerox and so on. In the days and when that- you could get
0: a million quid for a server.
1: Oh uh, yeah. I mean, yes. Where you know, a room full of equipment costs a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but I was at that point I signed small mid-sized businesses and selling mini computers. Right. People remember what those were? And then I, in the early eighties <laughs> without getting into long stories, I started running into occasions where we we're getting ready to close a system that in today's dollars about like a quarter million dollar system. And, walk in to close the deal and the customer and say, well, you know, I just bought this Apple II, And they told me at the store, this does everything your $60,000 computer does, which it didn't. But after that happened a few times, then I, I went to work for Apple. And that's where I started my journey to work with a variety of startups in Silicon Valley and Southern California, where either I was the first individual contributor in the door and or you know, VP of sales. And grew several companies uh, to a decent size, uh, IPO. So I was selling, selling for the last fifteen years. Selling before I started my own company in two thousand, I was selling satellite communication systems. Exactly. So it was multi-million dollar communications networks to companies throughout the world. And that's really what got me on the path of moving from selling to small and mid-sized businesses to selling to really large enterprise. Yeah. And and I started my company in two thousand with the goal of saying, look, one thing things that I'd gotten very adept at is working for no brand name company without a track record selling mission critical uh, networking systems to really large companies competing against really large companies. I thought there was really a a niche there to be able to help small companies learn how to compete in the marketplace against big companies. So I started my company with with that in mind. Um, And eventually that led to my first book.
0: What's interesting is actually you've put some context in there as that clearly you've you've done some very street fighting sales gigs, oh yeah, and you've done them at the at the what I call the real dirty end of selling. Which uh, Mike and I are, are much, Mike and I are big advocates of people from the dirtier end of the sales spectrum, <laughs> and, and, and we like our salesmen tough. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I don't know. I th- I think what you tend to find, and you you know you've you know, seen this, I guess, Andy, is that. The smaller company has little to offer in the way of support than the bigger company. So guys from the smaller companies are often the more complete salespeople because they have to be by virtue of the environment in which they're in.
1: Yes. Well, and it's really, for me, it was more about how do you build trust and credibility as somebody with no track record where the the people who are making the decision have a lot at stake, right? I mean, there's, there's personal risks to them in making this decision to buy from this no name company to run, you know, something that's central to their company's operations. And so really uh, getting good at being able to connect with people and build the relationships and, and understand what they want to achieve achieve and how we could best help them do that yeah that that uh, that was what set us apart
2: i was interested in your first chapter you know your first section is what is selling i was interested that you used the jeff bezos quote mm. it surprised well, me really from a man that sold in the b in the b2b market
0: to b2b seller, <laughs> a, B2C seller. A, B2C, a b2c example yeah
1: Right. But I think that the the basics are the same across in terms of decision making and the process people go through. And and I was so struck by that quote when I read it in the Harvard Business Review in an interview Bezos had done that you know, when you, it's, you know, as so you read these things and you go, Oh, so that's, that's, that's why, right. This is what I've been thinking. This is somebody putting something into words that, that I'd sort of been doing for a long time. And, and just this idea that, yeah, that's really our job. Our job is just to help somebody make a decision, make a purchase decision. And in that context of selling, when I look at my experience was is selling is really a collaborative act. You know, it's an act of working with someone. It's not as most sales people envision something you're doing to someone and I think it's that change in perspective be, between being a collaborative act versus something you're imposing yourself on someone it's it's a huge difference only the customer receives it and the customer perceives you
2: where do you where does influence and influencing a decision come into your psyche when you're talking about selling
1: well <laughs> Yeah. You, the way you influence is through building a relationship and trust, me, trust and credibility. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's very subtle, right? As you're on this journey together and you, yes, I have an agenda. I'm not, I'm not, if you have read Adam's grant book, give and take, uh, it's a great book. I recommend to people. But he said, you know, that as a giver, you're not giving altruistically, you, you have an agenda and that's okay. It's just that does that agenda eventually align with what the buyer is trying to achieve? In Some cases it doesn't, in which case you know, they're not going to buy from you. But for me, what I was trying to do is the way I influenced, I believe is through building the relationship, building the trust and credibility, and then telling a story, creating a story that the customer could buy into the story of, Hey, this this is a vision of what, you know, based on what you've told me about the outcomes you want to achieve. This is what it's going to be like, and this is what you're going to get from it. And this is how we're going to help you achieve that. Because, and, sorry, Andy, and, that, you keep and that's just a more, and that's just a more, uh, I want to call a more subtle form of influence. But it's maybe it's a more consistent, gradual form of influence. But you're definitely trying to influence.
0: Because for me, the book missed. I've I, I, I found since we started doing book club, Andy. I've found a lot of the books we've dealt with have been very frustrating in as much as people don't talk about influence enough. Mm. Now, actually, there's a a, a, and I wonder the extent to which I feel a lot of the books that are written by a lot of the authors we work with Mm. are written in a way that will appeal to a prospective audience that is a reluctant sales professional and therefore (laughs) the authors don't really want to say, your job is to make a difference as to whether that customer will or won't decide to buy that solution off you or not. Right. Well, I think that- and uh, So I get a little bit frustrated because sometimes there's a lot of, your job is to build a relationship with the customer. Well, for me, that's given. Um, Everybody's job is to build a relationship with the customer. Your job is therefore to, to build trust and credibility. That's given. But for me, the bit that I often look at where I think what separates the really top guys from the ones that are in the middle of the pack or the bottom of the pack is nearly always that they're extremely influential people and that they're unashamed of their ability to influence the course of and the outcome of a deal.
1: Yeah, I think it's a change of perspective in terms of how you accomplish that, right? Yeah. So some people some people when you say influence what they say is look, I've got to be this you know persuasive suave suave smooth, <laughs> talk, smooth talker I was going to go into a nickname um, a smooth talker and and I don't really think that's it personally is um, you know I think that that influence comes from as it starts emanates from that relationship and the trust, but it's, it really comes to enrolling people in this vision. And that's, that's the part that I found is, you know really been key to my success is we create this vision and then we get the buyer enlisted in that because they begin to see what the value is going to be to them personally, as well as an enterprise for moving down that path. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can't hide from it. Yeah, you know, in the book, I talk about this idea of peak end selling, which I don't know if it was on your your list of questions, but did, you know you have right, but you do have to be deliberate in this process, and this is a part that's you know one of the central premises of the book is that too often sales these days is just about robotically following a sales process, right? I'm as a manager, especially as you get more data-driven sales. Look, I've got my metrics. Just make your calls. We're just going to make this purely into a numbers game. Blah 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 blah. And as a consequence, what happens is we get the outcomes that we're seeing in sales these days where win rates are dropping, a smaller number of reps are achieving quote year over year because they're just, they're basically playing the odds. And they've forgotten that we actually have to take deliberate action to influence people to make a decision to do business with us.
0: But companies are scaling playing the odds. Sure.
1: Some will. Absolutely. And then what happens, like Salesforce.com, they stop playing the odds. They actually have to start learning how to sell. And so there's a certain small fraction of companies that are gonna, they're in the right market. They're hitting the inflection point. Well, they're going to succeed and they're going to scale, but they're going to hit a point where they're not going to be able to do that anymore. Because very few people sell into infinite markets where they can just focus on putting crap into the top of the funnel and get a certain percentage of to come out at the bottom. Mm. And so, yes, Some companies will do it. For the vast majority of companies, it does not work, and it's not sustainable.
0: In the book, you you do allude to cold calling. For me, one of the again something that we found since we started recording the book club podcast is a lot of our authors don't talk much about what I think is the elephant in the room. And and to be fair to you, you've made a great point in the book, which is listen. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to get done. Hmm. Um, and and Mike and I were both very. Appreci- well, I wrote it. Here to we were talk both about, very appreciative of that right because so few people just so listen. Mate, it's, it's, you've got to get it done at some point. You've got to get in front of some customers, and that's it, and all about it. Great. But uh, uh, why? Uh, what I don't get is, and Mike and I had a debate about this on the show last week when we were talking about the book. I said to Mike during the show, if I get one sales guy, and he generates loads of activity he gets loads of appointments he's burning shoe leather and he's burning rubber on the road he's out all day and he's meeting customers some of which are very well qualified and i've got Mm. another guy who's perhaps not quite as good but he's responsive and he's creating great content i still think sales guy one whose activity level is high will win
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you need to have people to sell to, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So yeah, there's no escaping that. And I think I I have a little different experience than you guys. I, I think Go there's, on. I think there's actually too much attention paid to prospecting in general and yeah. sales these days. Yeah. And it's going to, it's, it's just a cycle we're going through and, you know it's it, there's people now making statements in books and so on that you know you're that the try to claim that i don't know everything good thing in life flows from your ability to prospect which I, I think is is a little bit of an overstatement but it's basically true and and i think it's just it's something you do you know i as i talked about in this book you know an ideal world you wouldn't have to prospect
0: no, would get the job
1: though. and mark and job but they don't and that's and it's not necessarily criticism marketing, it's just the way it works so far. So we're not able to be that targeted. We're not able to be that consistent in the leads we generate through our, our inbound marketing. And that's that's fine. I've worked with a company, uh, as a client where they actually were that good. Yep. They 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 got Every new lead coming in that they closed, and this company is growing rapidly through an incredible inbound marketing campaign. They were just that good. But I've never, that's a one-off example, right? I've seen very few companies that can rely on that. So as a salesperson, and you know, you have to decide and make this decision as you bring plan together is, is what can you rely on? if any, coming from inbound marketing. And if you can't rely on that, then you have to put together a plan to go out and prospect and develop prospects. And I think that how many really depends. And this is part that I think we get lost in these days with data driven sales is that number is different for every individual. Yeah, I I usually ran about a 1.5, 1.75 pipeline coverage ratio. And some of that was an artifact of selling really large deals, that's fine. But even earlier in my career, when I was selling smaller deals, it still was somewhat I, I closed a high fraction of the deals that I I developed. Uh, Not everybody did the same way. That's fine. So we've lost this ability to some degree in sales to enable people to act individually. And we're trying to put the same measure over everyone. And some people are better at prospecting than others. Some need to have more prospects in their pipeline. Um, But the bottom line is you still have to have people to sell to. It's interesting
0: that you talk about this ability to have people act individually. Yet so many companies are so obsessed with uh, the, this phrase that I, I think has been coined by people like Reid Hoffman about blitz scaling. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's become a little, little bit of a, and I'm sorry to say it, it's an American obsession. Um, uh, mm. with this really rapid growth, fast, 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 ramp it up in a very structured way, automated marketing, automated yes. outreach, automated sales software, automation, 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 and just have human beings at the end, managing the automation system, But actually, you're from a completely different side of it, which is let the individuality of the salesperson and their creativity in the process shine.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's, it's, we're seeing the limitations of not acting that way in the SaaS business currently in the United States and, and perhaps other places. And yeah, I mean, you, you look at just the attrition rate in in sales, at least in the U S where, you know, the average SDR at 10 years, like between 12 and 14 months. Um, yeah. you know, and the, the average VPS sales, I think now I, the last thing I heard is 18 months and, you know, the average a account exec somewhere in the middle there is, yeah, how how can you build a sales culture how can you build you know sustainable sales excellence in an environment where people are changing over so quickly yeah. and you can't and so I think part of that turnover is when you look at the surveys is directly attributable to the seller saying look I'm not getting from my manager what I need in order to grow both personally and professionally so I'm going to go find some place where I think I can get that do
2: you, do you believe that or do you just think that they're looking over the shoulder because they're going to get fired because they're missing targets so they change jobs
1: well, I mean, yeah, nothing's 100%, right? I mean, there's there's certainly some individuals that would be the case. But I think for those who clearly want to develop, yeah, I think there's a high level of frustration that, uh, and we see these with members of the sales house and other companies I work with, is that you know, their managers are so fixated on managing by metrics that, they really don't have anything left for them as individuals to help them grow. And either they can add value, the manager can't add value because they don't have the experience themselves. So they don't have the inclination to develop the individuals because they look at them as such disposable parts. Hey, if they're only going to be here 12 months, why do I invest in you? Cause you're just going to leave. And then you get this you know, self-fulfilling vicious cycle occurring. <laughs> um, and it just, we need to break out of that. And so I put some of the onus on the individual to say, look, you need to start. And I did this. I took a risk. I I fortunately had a manager that gave me the rope to do this early in my career, but yeah, we had process of burrows and, and yeah, my personality didn't align with that process. Um, and so, yeah, I had to sort of take a risk and break a rule and say, look, I'm going to do this slightly differently. And it worked and I was encouraged to keep doing it and we need more managers that will encourage people these individuals to take some risks and develop their own style instead of trying to fit them into a, a niche
2: because I think what happens with a lot of these companies because the, the attrition rate in the UK I guess is similar to the US you'd think it's about I would say, imagine I so I would have thought um, and I think what happens is a lot of the companies think to themselves well actually if I put too much power in the salesperson so I put too much dependency on their creativity. When they leave, they become hard to replace. Whereas if I have all the process in house and the process is the um, uh, is the you know is the is under the ownership of the company, well, if Johnny resigns, don't matter. I can just get somebody else to replace him. And I think that's right. where we're at. You know, you look at the SaaS selling model with the puppy dog sale. That's 30 days free trial, and then I'll take it away from you. You know, that's taking the skill out of the salespeople, and the salespeople don't need that same level of skill anymore. You know, all the marketing automations tools takes the power away from it's the It's interesting,
0: though, because you say that, Mike, but I was reading an article about Docker the other day, which uh, was like a real darling of Silicon Valley for a long time. And they've got the ultimate puppy dog sales SaaS business model. You know, it was open source. You come and have a go if you want, and then you can upgrade to the latest kit, and then it becomes obviously a, a revenue-driven model rather than open source technology. But they're in real trouble Because actually, I think their puppy dog sale methodology of here, yeah, download it off the internet and play with it for as long as you want, in the end has caught up with them because there is no... Well, there's no skill in the people. There's no skill in the people and there's no salesperson sat there saying, well, actually, before you start downloading the software, are you serious about using it? Well, that's Andy's point. Andy's saying put the skill back in the salespeople
2: a little bit and give them Mm. autonomy to be free thinking. And
0: and this obsession about... Oh well, who needs the salesman anyway? We can just let the customer download the product, and it'll sell itself. I think it's actually gone a little bit too far.
1: Well, but I, th- I think you see fewer you see fewer companies embracing the freemium model as you're talking about there. Yeah, um, sort of for the very reason you're talking about, right? Is is very little control over the ultimate outcome, whether someone's going to buy or not. So, yeah, you see the the. The process, the standard process, though, is for so many companies is, hey, we got the SDR. The SDR is just trying to sell a demo, right? Or yep. a conversation, which could be a demo conversation. And that's all they're trying to do. And then you get the AE involved. And somehow the AE thinks that because they agreed to do a demo, that somehow they're qualified. And 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 they just sort of push the ones they can to a close. And given sort of the requirements that are placed on many of the reps in that model is maybe they need to have these, what they call a five X pipeline coverage ratio. So five times the number of prospects is they're dooming themselves to a low win rate. And there's a burn, they burn through a lot of prospects just to find the ones that'll take the path of least resistance to close. Yep. And so we, we, we end up in this world where uh, and I use this chart in when I give talks is imagine if you will, a, a, a chart where there's three balls on the chart or three circles. Once so say once the size of a basketball, one's the size of a golf ball and the next one at the end is the size of a basketball. And this is sort of the way so many SaaS organizations look at sales. So the first big ball on the left is going from left to right is that's prospecting. That's lead gen. The middle ball, tiny little ball in the middle is that's middle of the funnel. And then the big ball at the end is closing. And, and yeah, I, I, Start by drawing an extra closing and say, "Look, yeah, you know, I've sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stuff. I've never been in the room when the customer made a decision. I mean, I, there' this idea, this mythic closer that they hire people for it just doesn't exist. So let's let's x that out. And then you've got this you know disproportionate amount of your energy focusing on top of funnel, yet where you make the difference, to the buyer and when you actually where you get the decision is the tiny little ball in the middle which is selling which is the middle of the funnel and we've taken our mind our eyes off this middle of the funnel activity you know discovery qualification needs analysis where you can really make a difference yeah in terms in terms of actually winning well like i said we're not selling anymore we're just playing the odds where well, you and can find a
0: fine margin between you and the next guy I think you talked about it. You only have to be 1% better.
1: better, sure. And that's where you do it. And this is where you make yourself memorable. This is where you... And so, you know, at every step of that process in the middle of the funnel, there's opportunities to set yourself apart, differentiate yourself, and contribute to winning. But instead, what happens is sort of the current ethos is, yeah, we all just... We're going to check the boxes and go through those. They don't really make a difference. And, yeah, that's where I disagree.
2: Okay. I, I want to talk to you about so This is... you you know in all the books that we've read I always think to myself if I can just get one thing out of the book the book has been worth reading Mm -hmm. I think yours is a book of lots of lessons that if you did them all you'd probably be a lot better but if you did one or two you might be a bit better and if you did a bit better then it's worth having bought the book I think one that's well put actually is chapter six if that's the right thing chapter six section six where you talk about uh, earning selling time right that's a nice I was gonna, I was gonna, oh, you've got to get your book to, to remind yourself. I, 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 exactly. yeah, sure myself, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's for those people it, listening, yes. earn, earning selling time, what you're talking about is right. um, create more value in the call with the prospect so you've earned the right to sell again. Yes. And that's a and, good
1: concept, that. Well, tell me about that a little bit more. Well, this one hit me pretty early in my career, and I I, I think I was... A, Know, one of my bosses was talking about this, but we were, it just dawned on me that the way that I was going to be able to get time from someone. Cause you know, it, it's funny. We have the current mythology. It's like, Oh, it's so hard to get hold of people these days. Like, yeah, 40 years ago, people are sitting around waiting for salespeople to call them. Um, is, <laughs> is how do, you, how, how do you, how do you, how do you earn the right to come back. And so the simple value equation, which was, you know, somebody gives you some of their time or they invest their time in you is you need to be able to provide them a return on investment of that time. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, then you earn the right to come back again. And, but that requires a level of being deliberate, right? You can't be robotic and say, oh, now this is the time I send this, this piece of content to the buyer, or I'm going to put that in my cadence. And so automatically going to send to them. No, you got to for me, the salespeople have been hugely successful and consistently successful are those that are very deliberate in the actions they take and they're thinking about it each and every step. And so the point about earning selling time is I'm going to be very deliberate to say, I know exactly in this call what the value is that I want to provide to the buyer, meaning how am I going to help them move closer to making a decision? And, yeah, are they going to get a are they going to find that a value? And it's yeah, you know, we just people operating on autopilot, which is what the vast majority of sales people do. Yeah, you know, it's it's not a successful strategy if you really want to have a career in sales. And and that's really I sort of wrote the book for it. People want to have a career in sales and want to take on increasingly complex sales opportunities or take on increasing levels of, of responsibility in the sales function itself you got to be thoughtful and deliberate.
0: Mm. Yeah. I thought it was a good
2: concept. That I, yeah, I, I liked that. That was my favorite chapter in the book, actually. Yeah. Oh, thank okay. you.
0: Uh, and then you good. talked, something that I thought was interesting was you talked about peak experiences for the customer. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I always, when I read it, I felt that that was a little bit contrary to the fact that you'd kiboshed the classic sales stereotype. Mm. So if you think, mm. you, you know, you, you're you pretty much, look, the, the whole thing about the classic sales stereotype it is kind of not really not really there. But my experience is that often the ones that create the, p- the peak experiences are often a little bit more charismatic, are often a little bit more stereotypical, and that sometimes I do think customers still fall for that stereotype sales guy. Sure. So I, I, I didn't I'm, quite get my head around that, Andy.
1: Well, some do. But let me let me give you an example. And I, I think I talk about it in the book is is. Um, yeah, you know, like that company that the client I had that said that was just such a great job with inbound marketing is, is they were not doing a very good job of, of following up on the leads that they were getting. And so, one of the things I helped them do was create this process to to follow up on all leads, inbound leads that came in within 30 minutes. And we shifted the composition of the sales team to have people that were going to be following our inside salespeople, who were more technically knowledgeable with the product. It's a relatively technical product they were selling, but just this fact of following up within 30 minutes became hugely, hugely important in the whole ability to close deals because they were they were setting themselves apart that ex- buyer experience of entering an inquiry and then getting a call back with somebody who knew the business, knew their problems, could develop this empathy for them very quickly was a huge differentiator. And so that that first experience, that first contact with them, which was substantive, was something that was memorable and became that peak event for the buyers. Yep. And so I, I, think, I think, yeah, I was certainly... There'll be charismatic individuals that, that, uh, can impress people, but I, whether that becomes the peak event or not, because for me, the peak event means that it has something of substance yeah, for, okay. and, value, and value for the, for the, uh, the, the ex- person experiencing it, the consumer. Um, yeah, it's. It doesn't have to be, like I said, I don't think the smooth talker necessarily persists in that. And I think that's that fact that you did respond quickly, that is the peak event. And the fact you responded with content and responded in a way that, that was valuable to them so that the time that they were engaged with you. And so one of the things we did with this same company is, is oftentimes people want to have a software demonstration of the product they were selling. And uh, what we did is, you know, I trained the salespeople to say they get about 15, 20 minutes into the call and invariably the prospect said, well, this sounds really exciting. You've been, yeah you know, answering a lot of my questions, asking great questions of me. I'd love to see a software demo. Can we schedule that? And what we do is we'd train them to say no.
0: Okay. Why? Then,
1: well, but then the follow up questions, but we can do it right now. Right. And so I said, yeah, no, we can't schedule it, but I can do it right now. People love that. So suddenly within the first hour of the phone call or they even 45 minutes, the they were seeing the product, they're they talking to somebody that was thoroughly knowledgeable, that, that understood their issues, had the acumen to help them make a decision. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this company, just by virtue of changing how they follow up leads, really doubled in sales in about two and a half years uh, and had a very successful exit and it was really their sales process that did it that was you know focused on responsiveness helping people make decisions more quickly and uh it was very i said that was memorable so we did a survey of this and uh we did them every six months what I was astounded by is that they were getting like a 92% rating from the customer's approval rating on the selling process the experience of the buyer the buyer's journey which for me was was unprecedented uh, people the customers generally enjoyed working with the salespeople.
0: people right and that, you see that is the sort of context that we don't get when we read the book exactly that really makes the difference just on something that
2: you're talking about there it's amazed me I can't remember what the stat was now but it amazed me about the lack of follow-up for incoming for sales leads.
0: This blew our mind, Andy. I just thought that was yeah.
2: incredible
0: because Mike and I are from a world where you would be shot for not responding to a lead quickly <laughs> or dragged behind a BMW down the M one. So we 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 don't understand a world where you wouldn't follow a lead quickly. Yeah.
1: Oh, I didn't. I didn't either. I mean, I. I um... You know, once I was selling, I was like, why wouldn't you, right? Here's here's someone who's raised their hand. But I think that that, uh, in the case of this client I talked about, these are actually not just people downloading a white paper. These are people actually writing in saying, you know, on a web form saying, hey, I want a salesperson to call me. And so if you get somebody to that level, why wouldn't you follow up, right? What was their answer
2: to that question? Because you must have asked them that.
0: You must as a co- you must be in company's coaching <laughs> and saying to people why would you not respond to that?
1: What there is say? no there, there is no good reason for that, and that's the thing is is well. So here's the number one answer you get is, well, marketing leads are crap, right. and so, you know, okay, but what if they're not? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so you're going to take that out and I would. Yeah, if I was getting a good lead coming in for marketing, I would, I'd follow it up and said, but, you know, there's this whole ethos that exists and and among sales thought leaders, quote unquote thought leaders that say, look, you know, the only good lead is when you develop yourself. And if you develop a lead yourself on a cold call, then not only is that lead gonna close at a higher rate than an inbound lead, you know, it's also gonna close at a higher average sales price. And first of all, there's no evidence to support either of those contentions. And I, I, I was on a, a webinar I was on a webinar once with a guy who was saying that. And I said to him, I said, you can't say that. There's no truth to that at all. I mean that <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's just, it's mind boggling that people think this. So, yeah, you know, there's this machismo, whatever, you know, that comes from salespeople that think, yeah, you know, I've got to do this myself and this is the only way it's going to be good. And yeah, it's just absolute craziness. I think there's a
0: mindset that if it's a marketing created lead or it's been a, a web form that's been filled in, there's a likelihood that that web form has been filled in on eight other websites by the same prospective client. And therefore, you've already invited a boatload more competition than sure. you really would have
1: done. Right, but if you're if you're out making cold calls, you know, run across somebody says, "Yeah, yeah, we've been thinking about doing this," and you don't think they've looked at twenty websites of other competitors? Yeah, of, of course, they, course they have. have. And as soon as, or you're the first one in the door, and you've interested them, and you know you've activated their interest in doing something. Do you think there's a possibility in hell that you're the only one they're ever going to look at?
0: Correct. And often, when you when you are the first person in the door, and you do create almost a little bit of, or you nurture a little bit of latent pain, usually it sparks a project and mm-hmm. the, the, it sparks a search for alternative suppliers anyway. They, yeah. They seldom look at a supplier in isolation unless you've done something incredible during the, the early stages of the process.
1: Yeah, I think there are certain certain instances where perhaps you can do what I call taking prospects off the street. Right? I mean, we sort of did it with that one client. The one I gave the example before. say such a great experience in the first forty-five minutes to an hour that oftentimes we we eliminated their their need, uh, their feeling that they had to go talk to other vendors, and and that but that plays into a sort of a level of decision making, which is uh, people generally make the good enough decision. You know, they're if you follow Herbert Simon's whole thing about maximizer their satisfaction. Satisficers, yeah, most people fall in this category. Satisficers, they'll look for information until they've satisfied their basic requirements, make the good enough decision, move on. Um, so in some cases, yeah, you can first mover advantage exists, but oftentimes you just have to assume they're going to talk to competitors, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mike, anything else you want to ask? Not really. I mean, we've both, written, I can see your
2: page, actually. We there's covered a lot of it, haven't we? There's, there's something that is on my mind with, uh, and we're, we're reviewing a book Uh, not the next book book after getting things done Mm -hmm. I have always hated that book (laughs) Jonathan has has always loved it (laughs) let's hope the author still comes on after he's just heard me say that (laughs) but but (laughs) but I've always been a massive fan of of responsiveness Mm -hmm. I think you've got to be quick back to your clients and I tell you now I would imagine if you straw polled the clients that I have and said why do I use Mike they would say because he's quicker getting back to me with anything that they need. And I think speed of responsiveness does a few things. A, it shows the client that you actually care. But B, if you're the person that's responding, you're the person that's directing the pace of the conversation and where it's going. So I did like your chapter on responsiveness, I must say. It's very uh, apt and relevant in a market that we're in at the moment.
1: Well, but I think... Thank you. And I, but I think one of the, the the key points there that yeah I try to bring out in both this book and my first book, Zero Time Selling, is that the reason responsiveness is so important is it's something that you as a seller have absolute control over. Yes. You know, you can't control the product, you can't control the price, you can't control the quality. What can you control in your day-to-day life as a seller about what you're selling? I can control the experience the buyer has with me. And we know that that's that's an important okay. factor in their making a decision. And so one of the ways I control that experience is I can control how responsive I am. And so for me in my career, that's always been a big thing is because this is one way I try to stand out to, to your point, Mike. I agree. Yeah. And, and I can control it. And so it, it just drives me nuts when I, I work with sales teams and sellers and people are sort of, oh, yeah, I got an email from a customer. Uh, yeah, I'll get back to it tomorrow. It's like, no, do it now. Yeah, yeah. Right. Constantly. It's, it's it, you know prioritize this experience and that the, the buyer is having. And again, it's it's one thing you can, one of the few things you can control as a seller. So take advantage of it. I mean, I I not to sound gimmicky, but I mean it's it's one thing that I'll do on occasion is is. When, you know, somebody sends something to me, that requires a quick response. So I'll get back to them. You know, it's sometimes it can be within a half hour and I'll say, I'm sorry, it's taken so long to get back to you. And nice, what, like what it. you're, what you're doing is you're just putting everybody else in the shade. Yeah. Right. Cause they say, Oh, they think half hour is a long time. This guy didn't get back to me until two days. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. I want to work with Mike in that case.
2: That's a good idea. I'm going to start doing that actually. Like it.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is the whole responsiveness thing. And you talking about where that fits in with a system like GTD, where actually, theoretically, you've, you might only open your email once a day. Yes.
2: Well, not theoretically. That's what I advocate. Correct. He <laughs> it, it,
0: it, it, it does, but there's a little bit more flexibility in the system than that. But actually, what it, it, so it, it's difficult because let's say you're only opening your email once a day at 5 p.m to do a quick sweep of your email do defer and delegate on those actually you can't be that responsive and that's the point you're making
2: yes correct yeah understand you,
0: you can't be as
2: responsive as you need to be if you're doing that and I'm not I've responded before you correct I, I am hours ahead of you
0: and it's an interesting dilemma because actually you sh- if you're sat with your email open you're always being reactive not proactive with your time but I you've think always got one eye on your email
2: because you are controlling the pace and you are assessing the pace. So that responsiveness then creates proactivity. Whereas when you get to it at five o'clock, everybody else has been proactive, you are responding and you are triage managing a bad situation then, I think.
0: Yeah, you're late. You're the
2: third guy to ring the client back. Yeah, and the other two guys previously have shaped their requirement and they may well have shaped it out of your context.
0: Yeah, or they're there tomorrow and you're not. Yeah. Anyway,
2: that's not your yeah.
1: book. No, 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 but... It is my book. I mean, I, absolutely. That's the whole reason you want to be responsive. <laughs> I mean, I do reference getting things done in my book, as you saw. That's why we uh, talked about it. Yeah. 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 But I think that that's because it's, it gets back to this idea about being deliberate and this idea of understanding what the very next physical action yes. that you need to be taking is Again, s- too often. Sellers just aren't thinking that far ahead and, and really saying, okay, what is the next interaction I'm going to have with the buyer that helps them make progress, forward progress in their decision-making process. And, um, uh, yeah, I thought Well, you, well, you do things reference that
2: in chapter two, don't you? In understanding yeah. your selling process. Yeah. I think one day somebody's going to write a sales book and it's going to be understand the sales process the client is going through and influence it.
1: Of course it is. Well, yeah, it's being... So Gartner, with their research in the last year or so about buyer enablement, is is pushing that, which is that hey, the buyers don't know how to buy. They don't know what their process is. So you might have your linear stage-based sales process, but it doesn't match what the buyer is going through at all. So maybe it's it's time to rethink that. And again, it plays back to some of the themes I write about, which is just we got to be very deliberate and thoughtful and individual in terms of how we approach our, our prospects.
0: So what's the next book going to be about, Andy?
1: Uh, the next book is uh, sort of relationships and influence, actually. Cool. <laughs> nice. cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, as as I spend more time in in sales, and I've been in sales for four decades plus, mm-hmm. um, is things become more simple. Right? It's like you get older, you see, yeah, the extraneous falls away and what's really, really important is is left. And that's certainly been the trajectory of me as I've started writing about sales and so on is that if you don't, you say it's a given that people, you know, form relationships and so on, but there's there's a quality to the relationship you form that okay. that's really essential. And it's one thing that people sort of give it lip service and say, yeah, we sort of do that. I'm, just, I'm building rapport, blah, 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 blah. I actually think there's a, a foundational level to that, that if you don't execute that well, it does have an adverse impact on everything else that follows it in the sales process. Meaning that you're always going to be operating at a, a lesser level uh, compared to somebody that's that's mastered it. And that's just based on my experience and experience of many others that that, uh, that I've worked with. So it's really focusing and saying, look, if, if nothing else you know, master these these things. I'm going to talk about. These sort are of essential skills, and then keep working on them because, you know, as much as we think we're we're good at building relationships with other people, with other people, it, it's 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 a skill. It's a lifelong skill. I, I equate it to maybe like playing golf, right? I mean, Tiger Woods, who's the best ever, still practices three hours a day on making sure his alignment is right and his grip is right, and so on. Yeah, we need to do the same thing in terms of how we. Interact with other people. How we demonstrate our curiosity. How we how we listen. How we how we are deliberate in terms of delivering value to help them make progress in their work. Uh, and so it's focused on that.
0: And when does the world get to read that?
1: Uh, be in about a year.
0: Right. Good for you. Good for you. Well, listen, Andy, you've been an absolutely great guest today, and thank you for allowing us to talk about the book on the show. Um, what's the name of the business? Well, that, you. What, did you ever come over to the UK and do any work?
1: uh i haven't i'd love to i mean (laughs) i uh let's find an excuse and let's make it happen okay uh, i would love to but um
0: great well listen andy thank you ever so much for coming on the show nice to meet you you today andy paul nice to meet you thank you bye-bye thank you thanks guys right andy thank you for coming on today mate
1: Well, well thanks for having me you guys are the best